I'm John. And hi, I'm Rachel. Welcome to Privacy Chats. So this is a forum for Rachel and I to talk about issues that interest us about privacy. And uh, we hope that you find them interesting also, and we're glad that you joined us. Yeah, um, and I'll quickly mention that our last episode, that was our first episode, and we presented the history of privacy through a chronological lens. So we looked at some of the earliest mentions of privacy as a universal concept, and we did so through sharing stories uh, from the mid 20th century up to, uh, you know, going back all the way to the earliest privacy case laws. Um, we followed some issues coming out of more modern technological developments. We touched on the FTC's fair information practice principles. Um, and we even took mention to the OECD guidelines and sector specific laws in the US. Um, so I certainly learned a lot through the preparation of that episode. And if you haven't checked it out, go ahead and do so. It'll be great. Uh, it'll be a great setup for this episode, I think. Yeah, it was fun doing that episode. I, I enjoyed it. And, you know, I think we both went down a lot of rabbit holes with our research for it, but it was it was interesting. Um, so just before we get into this episode, to offer a disclaimer that both Rachel and I are, are experienced and certified privacy professionals. Um, we were both working in the industry. Um, but, you know, we just wanted to be clear that the, the stuff that we're going to talk about is just information that we find in our own research using the same Google that everyone else has. Um, we're not going to be re revealing any trade secrets, and we, you know we're both em employed, um, but we just wanted to be clear that we're not uh, we're not going to be talking about uh, we're not representing the thoughts or opinions or policies or anything of our employers or anyone else. It's just Rachel and I talking about stuff in privacy that we think are interesting. Great setup on that uh, disclaimer, John. Um, I'll add that you know this episode, episode two, is. Um, you know, aim to cover a lot of content that we uh, realized we couldn't cover even in the first episode. Um, throughout that history of privacy episode, we uh, talked about a lot of developments in the U.S. related to case law, um, but we only scratched the surface of a lot of privacy's conceptual origins, which tend to stem from principles and frameworks that have arisen out of Europe in the 20th century. Um, so, so John, what do you have to say? I know you have a little bit of a, a connection with Europe, to put it lightly. I do. So, so I, while I was born in the United States, I was just uh, just a wee lad when my family moved to Ireland. I think it was about five years old, and I, w I grew up in Ireland. I went through all through school there, um, and I, I finished graduated high school and stayed there for one more year. Actually, worked as a bartender in Dublin for that year. Uh, before moving back to the United States, and then I get into military service here. Um, but you know, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about here, um, or some of it, is are things that I remember from from growing up in in the time frame that I did. And you know, if you haven't noticed, I'm a little bit older than than Rachel, so my recollection of, of things goes back a little bit farther than hers. Um, but I so I do have a, a close connection with with Europe. I still have a lot of family and friends there. What about you, Rachel? Do you have any connection with Europe? Uh, so not as directly, of course. Um, I've lived here in, in the U.S. my whole life. Um, I did call my mom to double check when the most, I guess, recent, uh, you know, generational connection was with Europe because I know I have a lot of ancestry in there and it's all over the place. Um, but what I did find out was that very early on in the 1900s, my uh, mother's mom, my, my nana, um, she grew up in a very small town in Pennsylvania from um, Lithuanian immigrants who 
came here um, right around the time of World War One, which I thought was interesting because I kind of figured for a while it was earlier than that, um, but it, it was more recent than I, I realized, which is cool. And, you know, I used to ask my Nana a whole bunch of questions about you know, her family and growing up in a small town and, you know, having a, you know, grown up in a, also a community where a lot of immigrants were from. It was very heavy uh, Italian and um, Polish immigrants in there, so she... Uh, kind of had a new fresh set of eyes as a child, at least, that I remember hearing a lot of stories about with the U.S. Um, but yeah, I guess, how does this tie into, uh, you know, U.S. and, and EU history? Um, what do you got for us, John? Well, you know, I think it's, you know, we always see the United States as a, as a, as a melting pot. And, you know, there's certainly people from all over the world here. And, and, and it's great that our country is made up of people from all over the world. Um, but there are a lot of people from, from Europe. Um, that's clear to see just looking around. Um, so I, I think that, uh, um, you know, it's important to point out that connection between Europe and the United States. Um, and even going back to, you know, the people said for a long time that, that the United States was discovered by Christopher Columbus. Um, so that's a connection going back to 1492 when Christopher Columbus came from, was it uh, Spain or Italy, Genoa in Spain? I'm going to yeah, say Spain. Spain. Yep. Okay. Um, you know, it turns out that, that Christopher Columbus really just uh, discovered people who were already here and sadly <laughs> he enslaved them. So we're really not supposed to celebrate the accomplishments of Christopher Columbus anymore because of that. Um, but you know the connection goes back uh, back a, a long time, and um, I think go forward from that a couple hundred years to your reference. Next, back to you, Rachel. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll I'll cover quickly the you know the the additional bridge and and the reason why I think a lot of our uh, you know concepts, even though we you know run our country a little differently than a, a big continent like the uh, like Europe, um, is just due to the fact that like our earliest at least colonial settlers were from Europe themselves. Um, back in history, I recall that Mayflower, Mayflower Compact um, being that agreement that was signed between the English pilgrims that came here for um, the purpose of religious freedom. You know, at the time they were uh, experiencing the, uh, the Protestant Reformation and they felt that, you know, their, their principles and how they wanted to, uh, you know, worship was not aligned with the Church of England. Um, and so they came here to seek that that freedom um, of expression in that way. And, you know, that's really our, our main connection, of course. There's plenty of history after that that reinstates that and brings in other, um, you know, European settlers and for different reasons. Um, but that was the catalyst for at least the earliest Americas. Yeah. So the, the you know, getting into the, the differences between the United States and Europe and, you know, really to draw the, 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 the parallels with, with our last episode and talking about the overall history of privacy, which in that episode, we were really more focused on the U.S. Um, but I think that the key differences in the structure, and I'll start with the, the creation of the United States as a, as a country in 1776 with our independence. Um, so our, our country has always existed as a collection of uh, independent states uh, operating together. Hi to your cat there. Yeah, um, listening. <laughs> so a, a, a collection of what started as 13 states and that number grew, but but uh, but working together to have one 
country together, um, which is really different than the way Europe operated. So Europe has is, is a bunch of different countries, and that number of countries has changed over time. And I'm assuming that's because they have merged and and uh, and split up uh, for whatever for whatever reasons. But throughout its history, and European history goes back far, far uh, before the United States ever existed. Um, but essentially, the, the the countries in Europe existed as as independent entities um, throughout most of its history. Um, and then I'll bring up to you know some pivotal things that happened in the early earlier this earlier in the 1900s that kind of brought about the necessity for some change. And I'll turn it over to you to talk about some of those. Yes. Um, so as listeners might imagine that uh, that pivotal event was World War One and World War Two. I wanted to, you know, focus most of my research on how things and concepts and groups coming out of World War II um, came about, but I, I can't do that without mentioning World War One as the major tie-in. Um, the idea was that, you know, World War One after that was finally cooled down and, and settled, it would have been the end of all World Wars. Um, it was marked by the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, um, which ended up imposing pretty harsh terms on, uh, you know, Germany too, as as you know, we were about to experience the rise of Adolf Hitler and uh, the Nazi Party during that time, where there was a huge focus for uh, Germany on nationalism, militarism, mm-hmm. and expansionism. So, kind of thinking about what you were saying, with you know, they operated independently up until one point. There was this vision that you know uh, Germany could take over the world and take over Europe um, in the in the process. Um, so a lot of that early World War II setting was characterized by the aggressive expansion, um, and then the violation of pre-existing international agreements. Uh, this spurred more military conflict as other nations responded to this. We ended up getting um, you know, allies and in, in having two sides formed with this. And at least what I <coughs> recognize uh, as the end of World War II would have been that attack on Pearl Harbor, which we now have a highly planned movie out for. I have yet to see, um, but looking forward to it. Um, but yeah, the the atomic bomb drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was considerably the end of World War II, as tragic as it was. Um, but it did bring about uh, new ideas for new agreements to say, hey, like we know this this was an atrocity to put it lightly. This uh, <laughs> two major world wars back to back, like how do we mm-hmm. band together and make sure this doesn't happen again? Yeah, and I think that that was the the, the key focus is um, what, what needs to happen or what needed to happen in, in uh, I guess in Europe, but really across the world to to prevent anything like that from ever happening again, both from the the, the countries invading each other in Europe, but but also the the, the uh, terrible atrocities that happened against populations of, of, of humans during World War II. Um, so that kind of theme of what is it that we have to do to make sure that nothing like that can happen again. And I stumbled across in researching that, I found a quote from Winston Churchill from 1946. Um, and he was talking about remedies and said that a remedy which as if by a miracle would transform the whole scene and in a few years make all Europe as free and happy as Switzerland is today. And then said, we must build a kind of United States of Europe. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, this Europe having existed for thousands of years and, you know, one of the key leaders in Europe in during World War II and post-World War II 
um, was looking at what was a, a, a new experiment in the United States um, as the template that they should follow. And I think that his 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 idea was that if, if Europe could could form that partnership, then it would prevent any individual country like Germany from rising up and trying to take over all of its neighbors as, as Germany did. Um, so, um, you know, I think that was pivotal. And, and I saw in your note something about Eleanor Roosevelt, so we'll turn it over to you. But, you know, noting that, that sadly her husband, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, who was a president for 16 years. The longest uh, term, yeah, ever. The, long, <laughs> the longest term, right. The only president to serve three terms or four, was it? He was elected to a fourth term. Anyway, I thought it was four. There had to be a ca caveat somewhere. <laughs> Yes, he. Um, but anyway, he didn't uh, survive the war. He he died before the war ended. Um, but uh, Eleanor uh, was still around, and and I'll turn it over to you to talk about how she influenced things after the war. Yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt, <laughs> what a woman. Um, she clearly took the baton um, from her late husband, and in doing so, like got herself involved in the um, UN General Assembly following World War II. Um, what she ended up being a part of was actually the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I'll just call the Human Rights Declaration moving forward, since it is a bit sure. of a mouthful that all four words instead of three. <laughs> um, but this declaration contained 30 articles uh, that detailed just individual basic human rights, fundamental freedoms that uh, people across the world should have. Um, they're reaffirming the, you know, Universal right to privacy is a very relevant one, um, stating that no one shall be, you know, subjected to arbitrary interference with their privacy, their home, family, or correspondences. Um, other rights included in there were, of course, the right to own property, the right to marriage, um, the right to a fair trial, um, all very concept, common concepts to us today. Uh, what, was, what I found interesting was that on top of the right to privacy, there was also a mention of a freedom of expression. Um, now, this, there's always a, a balance to strike between the right to privacy and freedom of, of expression, which is actually called out in this doctrine as well. Um, so, I, you know, I found it interesting that this idea that there's kind of pr proportionality to balance these two things is, you know, we need to protect everyone's uh, absolute rights and necessity, but um, there, there might be a justification to, you know, balance privacy for the sake of protecting, you know, humans and, and all their other um, unalienable rights listed in this doctrine. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my tie into at least uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, but uh, the, the most powerful part of the declaration, I, I think from my perspective, um, is that there's, you know, uh, there's an agreement between European states, right? Um, there's said to be also a, a kind of a, a binding contract and that breaches of, of these fundamental rights would warrant enforcement, um, you know, in, in change in local legislation, uh, you know, if the rest of the coalition in the UN kind of found that this wasn't honored. Um, but this, this right to privacy and, and the rest of the fundamental rights too would ultimately set the stage um, for a lot of language we see in guidelines and data protection laws following the next 75 years. Yeah, the, 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 so the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations, uh, you know, my understanding was that was intended to, to kind of influence uh, human rights practices around the, the entire world. But bringing it back to Europe, what we're talking about today, 
Um, so following that universal declaration of human rights in Europe, which really you know, suffered the brunt of, of what happened in World War II, uh, they created, the Council of Europe was created uh, specifically with a goal of addressing human rights. And that's a council that still exists today and is still uh, focused on, on uh, you know, promoting and protecting human rights, and not just in Europe, but across the world. Um, so following the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's created the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. And it has, you know, there's, I forget how many articles, but the ones that are most pertinent, and I thought it was, it was pertinent to point out that Article 2 focuses on, on, on the right to, to, to life, um, which, you know, for a lot of Europeans uh, during World War II, that was the right that was taken from them. They were simply murdered by, uh, by the Nazis. Um, then it goes through a bunch of other rights similar to the ones that you talked about. But in getting up into Article 8, 9, and 10, uh, really specifically focus on privacy. Uh, Article 8 specifically says that everyone has a right uh, to, uh, to, oh, I need my glasses to read, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> to respect for his private and family life, his home, and his correspondence. Try not to wear my glasses. This is too much of a reflection. Yeah. Um, and then articles nine, uh, nine and ten have you know similar rights that really uh, are kind of a tribute to privacy. So I like that uh, you know as you said that what happened in these conventions uh, you know serve as a foundation for a lot of privacy laws and stuff that I think we're going to talk about next. Um, but that it's it's the 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 the, the foundation of it is bit, is is embedded in in what is fundamentally about um, uh, about human dignity and and fundamental rights that that humans have which is really cool i think yeah and it sounds like the the council of europe really picked up what um you know the the un basically started with um their declaration sure. and and took a lot of the concepts verbatim basically uh yeah. but what i also found in my research is is kind of interesting i and, and throughout you know the rest of this chat i had to revisit and kind of reframe what would have especially under the context of privacy would have been relevant at the time because we're talking about this right to privacy is you know and, and i think we're used to in you know the modern state a lot of the guidelines and laws being very reactive to problems we've seen and experienced related to technology um but early in the 20th century um and up to you know the 1950s it's not like computers were, you know, universal and, and ubiquitous like they are today. They were sure. very early and preliminary. They they were really the closest computer that was, uh, you know, grown in mass was the tabulating machine, which we know they don't actually store shared information like computers do today, sure. and certainly not uh, digitally. They were only designed to really summarize information on physical punch cards, and this was helpful for things like census counting and, you know, counting functions and calculations. Um, some of the, you know, the more advanced tabulating machines actually ended up being developed by uh, a company that would later be known as IBM. <laughs> so I, I found that being a funny, you know, origin that I hadn't realized either. Um, but, you know, these, these very early machines, you know, they switched to plug boards eventually, but, you know, even in the 1920s, it didn't mean that they were um, super fast or had, you know, incredible speed of calculation or, uh, you know, the functions that it, it had to be written to do. Um, there wasn't any configuration. There wasn't any information exchange. It was um, mm -hmm. very much just, you know, do addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Uh -huh. And 
uh, it was slightly faster than doing it by hand, right? Um, and, you know, they, again, for specific purposes, that's, that's helpful if you have a lot of figures, but they're not, they're not computers like we know today. So I think it's, it's interesting that uh, with all of these talks about privacy, it has nothing to do with information exchange over the internet, over even telephone wires that, that much at the time. It could have been a possibility, but um, we, hadn't, we hadn't quite got there yet. So we're not playing catch up at this point. This is just uh, what you know, the, the largest powers of the world will recognize as just uh, basic rights in, in, in you know, the ideal freedoms of individuals. Yeah. And we, it's, it's kind of a nod to, to one of the concepts that we talked about in our first episode, that the evolution of privacy laws seemed to go hand in hand with the evolution of technologies at the time. Um, so bringing it back to, 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 to Europe and the laws, like, um, you know, how, how did things evolve there in a way that, that led to the European Union uh, being able to exist as it does today? And we'll get into GDPR stuff uh, later. Um, but it's in my research, I found that this Council of Europe that was initially uh, put together that Convention of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms um, followed up from the success of that and created in 1951, it created the European Coal and Steel Community, which at that time was just a collection of like six countries agreed to common management of coal and steel resources. So it was a kind of an economic thing. Um, and that was successful. So successful enough that in 1957, there was a Treaty of Rome that expanded on the success of this coal and steel industry thing to, to broaden and that economic sectors, uh, you know, beyond coal and steel, and added other countries and that then became the, the the European Economic Community or the EEC which is something that I remember from growing up in Ireland during the 1980s um, which uh, which led to in 1993 the Maastricht Treaty in 2009 the Treaty of Lisbon but basically what what started off as 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 independent countries through these small treaties and agreements and the passage of time and people getting getting used to the fact that hey when we work together as a common community things are better for us economically and and that so this that european coal and steel community eventually grew into what is now the european union um so and i think it's it's necessary to talk about that because without the european union existing as it does today they wouldn't have the the like, like really the power and the oomph uh, to do something like GDPR again, that you know that we'll get into and and, and talk about. Um, so yeah, I'll hand it back to you, Rachel. Yeah, that, and and that's a wild origin story because I mean, especially coming from my like very very through and through formal American education, like I think of the EU was the EU. You know, it's always been that coalition. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I, I don't sure. you know I don't question you know the the evolution over time with it not really starting to be that, but ending up as uh, being the influential group that it is today, um, especially going back all the way to, to the 50s where you know those, those large economic powerhouses were the coal and steel community. So it makes sense uh, as yeah. the evolution of anything great does. Uh, but I will <laughs> mention, because you talked about the uh, EEC, it, I, according to my research, was the original OECD, right? Um, and it, it sounds like that it was also built to administer the, you know, the Marshall Plan. Um, but if I can take it in, and go into the, the, you know, how it relates to privacy and, and what the um, the impact that the OECD made uh, as, of, as of late. 
So, yeah, I'll just stop you there for a little bit. That the, So the, the OECD, because I found that in my own research, started out as the OEEC. Um, but I think they're two different. The OEEC was not the European Economic Community. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the OEEC stood for. I should have added it in my notes because I have it referenced here in my notes. Um, but yeah, like you said, that the so the OEEC was developed after the war, so 1948, um, to administer the Marshall Plan, which was kind of economic recovery for Europe and aid coming from the United States and Canada to help because Europe was really devastated because there was so much war that happened there. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't I didn't get that connection between the EEC and the OEEC, which are really are two, two different things. But the OECD, which we talk about as a framework, which I think you're going to talk about more about now, um, did evolve from an organization called the OEEC. So a lot of acronyms there, but I'll, yeah, I think you were going to talk about some of the frameworks from OECD. Yes, yeah, so the uh, origins of the OECD you clearly covered here, um, but you know it, it did give this platform for government governments to collaborate and share information um, and develop solutions for a lot of the global challenges that I think they were shared as, as globalization caught up. Um, and you know I mentioned the the OECD guidelines um, because the guidelines uh, and I'll, I'll just point it as that. Um, they're actually the guidelines for the protection of privacy and transporter flow of personal data. <laughs> These were developed in 1980 by the OECD, and uh, it's really just laid out the basic rules that now govern um, and were meant to govern cross-border data flows. So country A and country B wants to exchange information that might have something uh, of personal nature to their citizens or to individuals. Um, the idea was to create a framework to still allow this to happen because it's likely that was meant for um, economic development and uh, you know furthering the strength of economies and through through transactions and business. Um, but we did recognize, of course, here through um, the development of the, these guidelines that we still need to protect um, individuals' privacy while, but not stifling innovation in the process. Um, there needed to be a balanced approach, but you know we didn't have a, a foundation for that. W what does that mean? Um, so the principles that the OECD set out, and I'll, I'll just uh, use their, their principles without going into detail with each of them right now, um, sure. they were collection limitation, which you know listeners might actually find a lot of these very familiar. Um, they're used today in, in a lot of different settings. Uh, we have collection limitation, data quality, purpose specification, use limitation, security safeguards, openness, accountability, and individual participation. Um, <clears throat> they were, again, and I'll repeat myself again, it, it, they were put in place to, you know, reassure that if you abide by these guidelines and you, you know, consider these in, in when you transfer information, um, you shouldn't create unnecessary obstacles to um, information exchange between, especially the member countries that um, are, you know, uh, you know, volunteering for these to, to you know, uh, adhere to these guidelines. Um, under all this, I've also read in these guidelines that you know, there's a intention for all transfers of personal data to be secure and uninterrupted. Um, and of course, between, you know, uh, member countries, you don't, <laughs> there's no uh, way to impose additional requirements on top of this so long as the country that you're sharing or, or receiving information with uh, also, you know, has the standard of practice within their uh, data management. So 
adequacy of, of transfers, it's a common that, uh, concept that was all the way rooted into uh, the OECD guidelines. We talked, I think, last time about the, the fact that the OEC guidelines were, were really uh, foundational in the privacy industry. Um, but the, the limitation of them is their guidelines or really suggestions. So the next step of that, that was that, in, at least in, in Europe, was that the Council of Europe, which had already been successful uh, focusing on, on human rights, um, put together in 1981 the, what was called, what became known as Convention 108. Um, title is full title is the Convention for the Protection of Individuals with regard to automatic processing of personal data. So again, they're focusing on on their core mission as an organization of protecting human rights. Um, so this Convention 108 um, really took the guidelines and formed them into something that had more more meat to it. Now the Council of Europe didn't have the authority to tell. The countries across Europe, you have to do this thing, but it really invited the member, the, or the countries across Europe, to come and and adopt these practices. So countries were invited to to come and sign this convention, and by signing it, they were agreeing to go back to their own countries and and enact regulations and legislation in their own countries that uh, that codified these guidelines into law in their own member countries. So that convention was uh, open for to be signed by by countries in 1981. Um, was the first legally binding international instrument in the data protection field. Um, and what was interesting to me is that the objectives of the convention were the first one was the free flow of data, which I, I think is significant to point out because a lot of people think that the privacy regulation, privacy laws are about restricting the free flow of information. Like if we can, we can protect people's privacy if we stop this data from flowing places. And that's really not the intent. We want there to be a free flow of data, but you know, adding on to that, the second objective of the convention is respect for human dignity. So let's accomplish both of those things, the free flow of data so that, um, you know, not just commerce can exist, but you know, I think it's beneficial to all of us for data to flow because then um, a lot of the things that we enjoy and benefit from uh, can exist while respecting human human dignity, which is what privacy is about. Um, so over the course of time, 55 different parties signed this. Uh, 20, let me get the numbers right, 45 were members, were 45 of the members were European countries and 10 were non-European states. So they weren't limited to just Europe, even though this is the, the organization is the Council of Europe. They're inviting really any country from around the world to come and adopt these practices. Noting that, uh, you know, things change. Um, Convention 108 was updated in 2018 with a bunch of new uh, provisions, some of it around uh, the, automated, uh, the automated processing of data, which you know, clearly can be done a lot uh, better and easier today than it could decades ago. Um, new stuff about the transborder flow of data, and I think we'll talk more about that. You know, additional rights for data subjects, and that's open for uh, countries to, to come and, and sign it uh, today. And it serves as a, as a kind of a foundational privacy uh, structure, I guess, in the world, uh, across a lot of countries throughout the world. Yeah. Um, and. You know, I, I similar to what you know, I, I thought of when we were uh, researching some of the like the the catalysts of these groups and these guidelines are you know contextualizing for technology at the time. Um, mm -hmm. We're you know talking about uh, you know the the more recent you know Council of, of Europe and Convention One Hundred Eight comes around in, in about the eighties, which 
you know, I won't know firsthand, but I know that personal computers did actually start to become more of a household thing. Um, you know, going back to talking about conversations with my uh, Nana and my grandmother when I was really young, um, sure. I remember asking her when I was like six or seven years old, like, did you have, you know, what did your computers look like? You know, just assuming she had them around, right? And she's right. like, man, I, I did don't, don't think I saw a single computer until like the late 80s. And as soon as I could get my, my hands on one in the 90s, like I was just like, I wasn't, you know, high tech at all, but um, it was really a purchase. And then I started using it. Um, but then she explained how they were really, um, you know, these giant mainframe systems that maybe right. were in libraries, but mostly in a research setting. Um, but finally up and through the 1980s, which brought me back to my research here, um, it was the first time personal computers were becoming accessible, really. Uh, sure. We had you know, early models like IBM's PC and the first Apple Macintoshes. Um, yeah. So they're, they're starting to be influential in the small business space. Um, and just more and more people are becoming familiar with um, technology and, and what it can do and actually getting involved in uh, develop, developing its capabilities themselves. Um, yeah. Recall earlier when I was talking about like the punch cards and the the switches, like those were, those were not machines that you had in your home, and you especially for that reason didn't know how to use unless you were um, really deep in, in scientific advancements and in development for very large and in that you know organizations with a lot of money to to spend on that. So it's not like you could just go and get your hands dirty with uh, you know the computer technology at the time. You had to wait and. 80s were the time of, you know, uh, the way to end. So we got, you know, graphical inter interfaces, you have the computer mouse, well, gosh, you can, you know, manipulate things on a screen, that's crazy. Um, you can start storing uh, a lot more data than you could, and it's not on paper, they're now on floppy disk and hard drives. Um, we have modems that allow people to communicate over the internet. Um, and then, of course, the rise of productivity applications, which, um, to me, strikes, you know, that, that that relevance for the personal data transfers and, and security of it. You and, and that combined with the next 30 years of like storage development, um, it's no question that a lot of the conversation around privacy and, and revisiting these, you know, quote unquote, older decades ago principles related to the right to privacy start to come up again. Um, you have a whole generation of uh, users that, you know, didn't behave or think about solutions to modern problems um, like they did with the tools they had at hand now. Um, so, so that's, that's a bit about what I wanted to add with kind of contextualizing, uh, some of the more, more recent developments like convention 108. And you, you mentioned, you know, the, the protection of individuals with regard to automatic processing of personal data. Um, you know, that <laughs> automatic processing probably wouldn't have been a term we needed to use back in the, um, forties when we were talking about the UN convention, but, um, now with the, the prevalence of information flow, um, and you know, the speed that you can do that on a less manual basis, very, very, um, you know, prevalent for protecting users as there's more vectors to kind of, you know, perhaps exploit users privacy for, um, nefarious reason reasons across different government entities. Agreed. And it's, it's, it's significant to, to, you know, you got to give credit to the people who are there, you know, dealing with these problems at the time. Um, the, last week we talked about FIPS, which were developed in the 19, early 1970s, which was the first time that they recognized that, uh, that this was possible to like automatically process data. Um, so going into the 1990s then, one of the key aspects of you know, data protection was the 1995 Data Protection Directive. Uh, talking about the 
1995 Data Protection Directive. Um, this is also known as the Directive 95-46-EC, which I wish I knew what any of that meant, but <laughs> I, I didn't get that deep into the, uh, the research on that in, in this episode. But um, it is an EU directive that establishes a comprehensive framework um, for the protection of personal data within EU member states, not unlike anything we've heard so far. Um, but the aim of this directive was quite different from what we've discussed now, which was uh, the harmonization of data protection laws across the EU, um, and also including certain rights and protections that uh, maybe weren't included in other um, frameworks and, and guidelines, and certainly weren't enforceable in the same way as a directive is. Um, some of the key features of the uh, data protection directive included um, additional uh, data protection principles, some, uh, you know, requiring and emphasizing consent as a prerequisite for processing personal data, um, granted data subject rights, um, such as, you know, accessing and rectifying. Uh, there's also protections for sensitive data, cross-border data transfers, and um, yeah, it just, it, piling on top of what had already, you know, existed, but actually putting it into the context of something that is um, more legally binding than other things like guidelines that we, we've talked about. Um, it is, of course, a, a foundational framework in the EU, but um, as technology advanced as it, it continues to do, and especially thinking about what was available and prevalent in 1995, even though not that long ago, um, compared to how we use technology today, there's still a very wide delta. Um, so what was nice about this directive is that it uh, started, you know, specifying that we needed a harmonization, but as technology continued to evolve, it didn't quite, I wouldn't say go away, um, it didn't <laughs> attack everything. Um, so I'll tease out that that was the uh, kind of predecessor to the GDPR, um, highlighting a, a bit more specifically what needed to be uh, laid out in a more comprehensive and, and stringent way as far as data protection rules, um, especially, of course, it being a direct or a regulation over a directive. Yeah, and one of the pieces that you said that, that, that were significant in the 1995 Data Protection Directive was about the, the trans-border flow of data. Um, so that's a really significant piece because, you know, obviously we're a, a, a country that's outside of Europe. So any data that, trans, that's, that, that flows between the Europe and the United States falls under that. And one of the provisions or something, an outcome of the, 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 the data protection directive was work, well, something that was called Working Party 29, which was, you know, I guess a group of, of people that were put together to, to figure out how to uh, operationalize some of these, uh, the provisions in the directive. And one of them was dealing with this whole uh, uh, trans-border flow of data. Um, so in, in 2000, there was a framework developed and put into place that, uh, called the Safe Harbor Framework, um, which really kind of ensured that the practices for data protection in the United States were uh, similar or at least adequate um, to what was expected in, in Europe. Because without that, like, you know, if they're, if they're protecting data in Europe, they're allowing that data to flow to a country that's not going to protect it when it gets there. It really doesn't, it's no protection at all. So the expectation is that the countries that they're going to allow data to flow to have to have adequate protections in them. So the Safe Harbor Framework essentially established that that, uh, that uh, adequate protection existed in the United States. Um, I'm going to go chronologically through some of these things. So uh, the next thing chronologically that I wanted to point out is in 2008, 
uh, there was an update to the FISA law, which is about uh, the data transferring in and out of the, the United States, and particularly with like um, uh, foreign investigation of foreign activities and stuff like that. So FISA 702 was a section that was a key part of this in really some of the problems that we're having today with, with data transfer between the United States and Europe. Um, so se Section 702 is a key provision of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008 that permits the government of the United States to conduct targeted surveillance of foreign persons located outside the United States with the compelled assistance of electronic communication service providers to acquire foreign intelligence information. So essentially what that's, what that's saying is that the United States as a nation can spy on people outside of the United States because we want to do that for, you know, protecting our own interests. And, you know, we could reference 9-11, uh, for example, and, you know, reasons why we would want to spy on other people outside of the country. Um, but interestingly, like when you look at laws in the United States, like even the Constitution itself, um, legal scholars will recognize that the Constitution in the United States is written to protect American citizens and that those protections in the Constitution don't extend to people who are not Americans. And it certainly doesn't extend to people who are not in America. Um, and that's really a problem for people in Europe because they recognize that the laws in the United States aren't there to protect them, um, which is kind of unfortunate because if you read some of these laws that we've been talking about, uh, it's clear that the intent of those laws is to protect humans and it doesn't just focus on the nationality of those humans. In fact, in some cases, it really compels the protection of people, even though they're from another country, that they're, if they're here within the, within the boundary of, of, our, of our country or within Europe, that they should be protected also. Chronologically moving forward, we all, a lot of us remember uh, Edward Snowden, who was famous for you know, revealing a lot of uh, internal secrets from some of the intelligence organizations in the United States. And, you know, I, I didn't read a lot of the stuff then, but the essence that I got out of it was that he was kind of revealing the extent to which uh, our intelligence agencies really were spying on, on people. Um, and that, you know, was a problem for people in Europe who don't want to be spied on and want their data to be protected. So a lot of, uh, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the reason for the next thing was because of Edward Snowden, but in 2015, the safe harbor framework was invalidated by the Court of Justice of the European Union, and they said, you know what, the protections in the United States aren't adequate anymore. Um, that's often referred to as the Schrems one decision, uh, after Max Schrems, who was an, an Austrian uh, activist, although I think he was a student when he first started working on this, um, who you know essentially brought a lawsuit saying that uh, that the, the rights and privileges of, of for him as as a as a European weren't being protected here. Um, so what we needed, to, well, there needs to be a framework so the data can flow between Europe and the United States because we are fairly tight partners. So that was replaced with the uh, Privacy Shield in 2016, which was overturned, unfortunately, in 2020, um, again by Max Schrems and some of the, the, the lawsuits that he brought, uh, which is often called the Schrems II decision now. Um, in October 2022, so less than a year ago, the European Union US data transfer framework was put in place. And the key differences with that framework is that it puts together kind of a mechanism for uh, someone in the European Union to question 
if uh, U.S. intelligence agencies have their personal data, um, and you know, there's a, there's a provision for them to ask for that data to be uh, to be, uh, I guess, deleted, the the right to be forgotten, for example. Um, but it's you know, it's it's I think to be determined if that's going to stand. Um, I've listened to Max Schramm on Schramm's on some um, podcasts, and you know, he's he's kind of said that. Uh, that the, the uh, European Union US data transfer framework is really the same as the last two things that have already been overturned. Um, so clearly he's going to, to fight against that. Um, so I'm not sure where that's gonna go, but this whole issue of the cross border flow of data between the US and the European Union is, is, is really a hot topic. Um, but it's something that we have to solve because you know we are close partners with a lot of countries in Europe and we, we need data to flow between the two entities so hopefully we can solve that um, so I, I, all I can say is stay tuned and we'll, we'll see what happened but in the midst of all of those things that I that I, that I talked about the, the the place that we started going to was was GDPR and and I know we're not gonna be able to talk about the whole thing but I'll you know you want to tease out some stuff that we might be able to talk about about GDPR, Rachel? Yeah, and, and, and I'll, I'll kind of bridge it with some of the, the story that you you just shared here um, with, you know, all of the the various versions of, of Shrem's acts. Um, there, sure. this, this balance between information sharing and, you know, safeguarding individuals regardless of their uh, association or, you know, their, their location, it's... Yeah. Um, it goes all the way back to 1948 you know when we were talking at the beginning of the episode of the the uh, universal declaration of human rights like sure. yes we have a right to privacy but that has to be uh balanced with universal. other other aspects of you know uh, again freedom of expression and then um the proportionality of um you know re keeping individuals um safe and, and out of harm there seems to be that conflict where you know we all agreed and, and we can opt into you know such a such an agreement or a coalition, but it seems like there's <laughs> breakdown maybe spurred by the you know modern advancements in technology and, and changes of opinion based on more uh, modern events like you were mentioning. Um, the U.S. had a very strong military position and always has, but it was exacerbated by uh, events like 9/11 and, and some of the yeah. you know uh, world global affairs happening in the late 90s. Um, it, it can't, you know, we, we can't bulldoze over some of the, the principles we all collectively agreed to um, at the beginning of the century there. Uh, in, in sure, it, if I could jump in on that point, like it's, it's interesting that uh, like more recently in the United States, people have, you know, questioned TikTok, for example. So TikTok is uh, owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company, and have concerns about their personal data in TikTok being transferred into China and worried about the Chinese, or the China, I guess the Chinese national uh, data protection practices within that country. Um, so you know, some people are saying, well, we need to make sure that all of our TikTok data for for U.S. citizens stays within our borders. But it's interesting that we we don't want our data to go to China, but we we have concerns when Europeans are saying they have concerns about their data coming to the United States. So. You know, it's you, you can't object to one on one side and and, and not the other. Like yeah, we, yeah, it's got to go both ways. <laughs> if you, it, if you're fear that it, you're it, being spied on, you know, then 
right? It, yeah. it can happen to anyone, and, and we're a globalized ecosystem. There's no there's no world where we're just you know performing trade and in business within our own country, let alone an entire group of countries, a whole continent. Um, yep. So, <laughs> totally agree. It's it's going to be a sticky, sticky situation. It makes me wonder about outcomes like um, Shrem's, like, what What was it, three? <laughs> what was after two? They call it Shrem's three? Well, we'll see. I mean, there's, I guess if, if they turn over the, the newer framework, if, if well, if, if he's the reason for it, I guess it would be called Shrem's three. But um, yeah. I think hoping that somebody else will step up to the plate. But I think at this point, everyone thinks that, hey, you're the you're the transporter flow of data guy, so you can, you know, file the lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. I think I remember watching the the same podcast that uh, you did with him going, I didn't I didn't even realize my name would be on this and I'd be the, the guy to, to represent so many people who felt the same way, but I just fell into it and here I am. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, no, I'm sorry for digressing away from this, but um, kind of connecting it to GDPR is the, the yeah. kind of very relevant <laughs> um, regulation that we haven't talked a lot about yet and that's because it's it's a whole world it's also a bit different from some of the uh frameworks and positions we've been talking about so far because we're talking about um usually government to government entities or um flows of information between countries regardless of whether it's a uh, business or a big corporation um or or an an agency or an organization that's more affiliated with you know the country uh formally now GDPR is is comprehensive in the sense that it's you know in, enforced by any organization that does uh, collect, process, or store share uh, information that's personal in nature. Um, and I will say that it is uh, you know considered a, a data protection um, regulation that follows what I was talking about earlier, which was the uh, data privacy or data protection. I'm even doing it. <laughs> data protection uh, directive uh, of 1995. And yeah. Part of the GDPR was to, again, focus on the fact that because the data protection directive was a directive in the EU, meaning all of the member states can implement it, uh, you know, according, accordingly and, and not, you know, bound by one centralized rule or law, the GDPR said, hey, this is a regulation. So the, the way it's written and the minute we enforce it, it is enforceable. You don't have to, you know, extrapolate or um, in, in, interpolate, I think is the, the proper term um, to you know, conform to your own member states kind of existing frameworks. It's, it is how it's written and uh, you might have, you know, data protection authorities within each, each member state, but um, the principles behind it and the lawful basis for processing for organizations are the same. um, So long as you have some presence in a country uh, within the European Union. Um, I believe this was the first time too within GDPR that the requirement for a data protection officer was a requirement. So for you know certain organizations um, of of you know enough size, and if there is a high risk um, associated with uh, high risk to organi- uh, individuals related to the information that organizations are processing, um, yeah. I didn't see that in a lot of the other um, you know uh, frameworks or even that earlier data protection directive. I didn't see that obligation to appoint a data protection officer, which. I think is interesting because you know I, I see them everywhere now, um, and yeah, but but essentially GDPR takes in uh, in in the principles that it uh, emphasizes is not far off from what we've talked about this entire episode. Those um, guidelines, most of those, if not all of them, are reflected as well into GDPR. So it seems like the GDPR was um, another you know hammer on a nail that you know wasn't quite <laughs> in the ground yet with you know what was you know earlier directives and in, in frameworks intentions to do um yeah. with 
organizing, you know, entire uh, an entire continent under you know data protection principles without being so restrictive that you can't you can't modify it to your own needs or um, to the needs with other organizations that also process data. Um, so yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll leave it there since I can kind of ramble on forever. It's it's a lot. GDPR is. It it is a lot, and I think when we when we first started talking about this episode, we were thinking we were going to include GDPR in it, but GDPR is it's I mean it's 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 really uh, a monumental thing. There's a lot to it. Um, it's I actually keep a, a printed text <laughs> nice. right here on my desk. <clears throat> I don't know, saying how much of a privacy nerd I am, um, but I, you know, it's worth getting into. I think we should talk about it in a separate episode and get into to more of like the provisions and the and the essence of it. And you know, there's a lot to be said for what's happened as a result of it. Um, the potential for fines is, is is pretty significant, and I was surprised by that when I first um, heard about GDPR. Um, but they've used it. Like there's there's some massive fines have been have been levied against uh, some large companies. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll have to see how much we're going to talk about those, but, um, you know, I think we'll come back for a different episode and, and, and talk about the specifics of G GDPR. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> right. Um, but again, to wrap up the episode, thank you so much for, uh, listening in everyone. And I hope you learned some pretty niche stuff. I, I know until I had, you know, our outline written out, I didn't imagine that I would, you know, consume the information I did, especially from the time periods we looked at, right? We didn't get to, you know, modern computer and, and uh, you know, information processing type history until very late in the episode. Um, but that just goes to show how um, not, I guess, novel in a lot of ways, these ideas that are uh, pushed in the name of privacy are. Um, yeah. we're not basically just taking them out of thin air and going, Hey, this is what I want. Do it. Like <laughs> it was, it was said before we knew the means that, you know, things like, uh, individual privacy could be exploited, um, without really knowing from a consumer perspective, it was yeah. what very large governments agreed upon for a long time. Yeah. Well, thanks for engaging in the conversation. I enjoy the, the chat, Rachel and, and the, the, you know, being prompted into having to do some research to get ready for our chats. And like, like you said, appreciate anyone who's uh, who sat through and listened to this. We appreciate it. Goodbye. Bye.